Welcome to the Independent Author Podcast. I'm Tom Kranz. You're listening to music by a master classical guitarist who is my guest today. Andrew Shulman has been a professional musician living and working in New York City all his life. He's performed at Carnegie Hall and venues around the U.S. and London. Today, he's pursuing a new calling precipitated by his near-death experience in 2009 and a miraculous recovery which he directly attributes to music. It's all detailed in the book we'll talk about today called Waking the Spirit. The tune you're hearing, by the way, is Venezuelan Waltz Number 3 by Antonio Lauro. Thanks for being with us today. How are you? Hi, Tom. Uh, it's great to be here, and uh, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm good. And you're in your Manhattan, correct? Correct, yes. Good, and I'm in New Jersey, so we're dangerously close, it turns out. So uh, we met and we worked uh, the summers of 73 and 74 together, and now it's 40, good God, I don't even want to count. It's it's a whole lot of years later, uh, and Andrew looked me up as he looked up another uh, mutual friend of ours who who, who were um, who played you know together, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, part of Andrew's life that I had no idea about, and you're going to learn about now. And when you finish this, you're going to want to go out and buy this book and become a fan uh, like I was for years and like I rediscovered now. So, Andrew, first of all, tell me what you're doing now. You've uh, uh, you've been you've played in many places for many people. Uh, give us an idea of just kind of what your life is like right now. Well, of course, everybody's life is affected by the pandemic. So um, for the last two years, um, I have not been outperforming as a guitarist. In fact, I was very lucky in that I had a concert at Carnegie Hall just a couple of months before the pandemic started. Because all those uh, unfortunate people who were booked there after that uh, lost that opportunity, even though it is back now. Um, So I have all through uh, the years since my college days, graduating from college when I moved into New York and became a professional guitarist, I have been playing uh, guitar. I've also become a writer. And um, my first book, which is the one that, that you've read, is Waking the Spirit, which was released in 2016. And that tells the story about how uh, not only did music save my life, but because of that experience, and when I say save my life, uh, medically speaking, I mean, there's a a very detailed story about what happened when I was in a coma and music was played for me. And as a result of that experience, I wound up um, becoming what I call a medical musician. People, a lot of people are familiar with a field called music therapy. Um, this, I'm not a music therapist. What I do, though, has similarities, of course. It's using music in a healing way. And um, so I became became a, a medical musician at the hospital where my surgery was and where my life was saved by music. That was Beth Israel Hospital, downtown New York. And I did that for seven years there. I was also uh, for one year at uh, NYU Langone Hospital, also in New York. Okay, let's let's hold on a second because we're going to get into that in some detail. Okay. So they say that uh, life is made up of a series of turning points certainly was the case for me along the way. Uh, And based on what I know about you and what I've read about you, uh, it certainly seems like there were some key turning points that changed your life, uh, you know, in 
you know, in your fifties and now uh, that you're, you know, a little bit older, even you're doing uh, stuff that I bet you never thought when you were, you know, taking people out on the boat at Quisasana, uh, you know, 40 years ago that you would be doing. Uh, yeah. What did you think you would be doing at that point when you were that age at this point in your life? Well, from an early age, I just wanted to always wanted to be a musician. I actually had a mentor in college. His name was Richard Dyer Bennett. He was known as the 20th century minstrel, a very interesting guy. And I had professors in college, also my music professors. And basically what I saw at those early in those early 20s was uh, that you made a life in music and it took you where it took you. So that's all I really at, at an early age. That's all I was really thinking that I would be a guitarist and it would take me where it took me. And it has taken you to a number of cool places. You've traveled to places around the world. You've played for some important people, it seems like. Uh, and now you're also playing for some important people, but it's a completely a completely different scenario. So uh, this podcast is about authors and about books. So I don't want to wait any longer to get to the fact that uh, we're going to spend a lot more time now talking about your first book called Waking the Spirit. Uh, This book was published about looks like five years ago or so. 2016. Uh, Okay. And it was, it's on Picador Press, correct, is the name of the publisher? Yeah. Uh, Picador is an imprint of Macmillan Publishers. Okay. And it's available uh, in all the usual places. Yeah. Um, the, from almost the first two pages, I was immediately sucked into the story. And the first, I guess, four or five chapters that detail all the crap basically that happened to you in such a short period of time, kind of out of the, no, out of nowhere, it reads like a movie. I mean, it really does. It reads like this is, did this really happen to this guy? So tell, take us to 2009, if you will, you were, you know, minding your business, having your life and you had a scan looking for something else. And, and, you know, tell us quickly what, what transpired and how that worked. Well, I had to have an abdominal scan because we needed to see if I had inherited something, uh, a defect in my aorta that my father had, which killed him. And I didn't inherit that, but the scan picked up the top part of my pancreas and uh, uh, two cysts were seen that were concerning. And what the doctor said was, uh, let's come back in about 10 months and take a look again, see what's going on. 10 months later, those cysts were not a problem, but what had not been there 10 months before was a mass the size of a walnut, the tail of my pancreas with ragged edges. And that that's just a clear sign of pancreatic cancer. So, um, I had a diagnosis, basically, of pancreatic cancer. And those doctors, and it was more than one doctor who concurred that it was... Four doctors. 90-plus percent positive, correct? Yeah, yeah. Three doctors said 100%. One doctor said 98%. So there you are. Now you've got this diagnosis. Your your wife is freaking out, I'm sure. Uh, Yeah. So... So then what happens next? Well, schedule uh, surgery was scheduled and um, then a series of events, life changing events happened. A procedure was done in the middle of the surgery, which was just to cross the T and dot the I. Um, The mass was removed and taken to the pathologist just downstairs 
And it's a, a, a procedure that takes a few minutes just to verify it's cancer. And lo and behold, it's not cancer. It was not malignant. It was benign. So you had kind of prepared for the idea that you you might die. I had I was given a 3.9% chance of living two more years. Right. And of course, your wife shared this pain and probably right. had at least as many sleepless nights as you. And yeah. then you found out or she finds out that it wasn't cancer. Oops. Yeah. So at the end, of the, the, the surgeon is overjoyed, puts me back together again. They didn't have to remove all of my pancreas, just the mass. So that was a huge, important thing. And um, the surgeon, as I'm being sewn up by his resident, the surgeon goes downstairs to the waiting room, tells my wife she jumps for joy. It's of like course. amazing, great news. <laughs> and then his beeper goes off, telling him that he's got to get to the surgical ICU immediately. And what? so what they didn't know was when they were downstairs talking, when they sewed me up and put me on the gurney to take me to the surgical ICU, which we call a SICU, by the way, before we even got to the door of the operating room, all of a sudden my blood pressure just bottomed out. And when that happens, the race is on because within a few minutes after your blood pressure bottoming out, your heart is going to stop. And they didn't make it. When five minutes later, when they arrived in the SICU, I was clinically dead. So you went from, or your, I guess your wife went from, because you were out, right? Right. Your wife went from this elation of, oh my God, he's going to be okay. He doesn't have cancer. To five minutes later, now you're near death. And I'm yes. guessing yeah. that on the way to the on the, on the way to wherever you were going, they probably were pumping your chest and doing CPR and yeah. Doing the usual interventions, intubating, attaching all kinds of lines to you. And so you never woke up from the surgery, essentially, that day. Correct. And so, so... You know, right. try to compress right. the next day, the next week or so for us. Well, what, what happened is I was put into a medically induced coma that night. As, as soon as they resuscitated me and got my heart started again, I'm in the medically induced coma and nobody there, no doctor or nurse thought that I would survive this. It was Why did they put you in a coma? Just just it because buys, it, it buys time hmm. and helps preserve brain function. Gotcha. So um, they, the assumption was, and, and, and in fact, this, I arrive in the SICU at 9 p.m. on a Thursday night. Uh, they revive me. At 3 in the morning, I flatlined a second time because oh they changed something else in the medication. Um, at bottom line, no one thought that I would even survive a day. I get, though, somehow, miraculously, through great also great medical care. I get to the third day, noon on the third day of the coma. My lactic acid number is 17. Normal is 1.8. Most people are dead by the time it's 10. So clearly I'm within maybe minutes. I'm, I'm about to die. And this one, the miracle happens. The miracle is that my wife reaches into her bag to get her phone, sees my iPod, and the light bulb goes off over her head. She turns to the doctor and says, his heart is beating, but his soul isn't. He loves music more than anything else. I think only music can give him the will to live. Many doctors would not have allowed the iPod in because 
you put the iPod in, I drop dead, he gets sued for malpractice. Mm, right. But but this was a cool guy. And he said, you can have 30 minutes, any sign of agitation, pull out the earbuds. Now, no one knew what to play. So they just hit the first track on my iPod. And that's where also incredibly lucky because that was my ultimate favorite piece of music, the St. Matthew Passion of Bach. The music goes in. And in, in short, I'll simply tell you, by the end of the 30 minutes, everybody's standing around amazed and looking at the vital signs monitor for the first time in three days i begin to stabilize and other signs of recovery start happening immediately with and by the end of the afternoon my lactic acid numbers drop way down uh and and it doesn't wake me up but it stabilizes me and literally it saves my life it re- the music reversed the metabolic process that was killing me and it's all in the chart and there were doctors and nurses there so it's not from something else it was the music it so- was the intervention while this was going on, were you aware? They, I, I, they, they tell me that when people are in a coma, they can actually hear. Could you hear, or did you? Were you Absolutely. aware of anything? Absolutely, I was aware of everything. Really, and and there's the thing called coma dreams. They're not real dreams. It's sort of almost hallucinations, or uh, uh, um, it, everything is goes through the drugs that you're on because of the coma and whatever else is going on. I actually had a coma dream, which I way too long to tell you now, but I had a coma dream. It's in the it's in the book. Um, of the moment that the music was played for me. Something happened with music in, in the coma dream. So I was aware of it. Plus, you know, you forget your dreams. You don't forget coma dreams. Or at least I didn't. Some patients do. There are patients that don't forget them. I, to this day, it's 12 years later, 13 years later, I remember all of those uh, coma dreams. Wow. So what happens is that on the day of the music, I stabilize and they realize my life has been saved. They then take three days to very gradually take me out of the coma. You can't do it right away, quickly. You have to do it very slowly. Then, without giving away too much, I'll just say, once I'm out of the coma and I realize, even even before I knew that music had saved my life, I knew that I had been saved by an extraordinary event. I knew that very quickly. And I knew that I had to give back. And I didn't have money to donate to the hospital, but I had my guitar. And I decided the day I came out of the coma and found out a little bit of what had happened, I decided that I had to go back there with my music to help people who were critically ill in the ICU. The chief doctor, Dr. Marvin McMillan, was a music guy. And he had um, had a music therapy program going on there, but it was something called environmental music. It was a few musicians off uh, in a corner of the room just putting music there. I wanted to go in and go to bedsides, and that's what he wanted. So when I was leaving the hospital, we had a few minutes to talk to him, and he had met me, but I had never met him. Mm. He met me when I was dead. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and took care of me though. His extraordinary care in the first few days is a big factor of why I made it to the third day. And so uh, he agreed 
that he would like to follow up on this idea, told me to go home, get better, and then call him, which I did. I went back to the hospital, and I thought I was only going to go a few times maybe as a little thank you. But from the very first day that I was in there, I realized I'd found a new calling in life. And um, I started it. I became very, very committed to doing this right from literally from the first day. The f- I went back, I spent a first hour and it wasn't at bedsides then. I didn't know how to go to a bedside. So I have no formal training. I did not go to school to become a medical musician, but I had maybe the best training you could have, which was on-the-job training in an ICU where they had saved my life. So they were predisposed to doing everything they could to help me. So And and so you are, aren't you, is there like a certification now that you essentially created or that was created for you? Yeah, I I have a certification from Berkshire Medical Center in in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, from the head of uh, medical education there and it's a co-certification he's also a dean at the university of massachusetts medical school so um in 2018 when i had uh, verified uh 2,000 hours of clinical um, appearance, uh, work, um, and I had already written the book. Writing a book like that is sort of kind of like a, a dissertation, the equivalent <laughs> of a dissertation. So um, I had uh, verified hours in the, the unit, um, and um, I had uh, uh, doctors who wrote on my behalf, and um, I had written Waking the Spirit, which has a lot of research in So he wrote me a certification. I'm currently a member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and I'm listed with them as a certified medical musician. And are you still doing it? Are you still going to hospitals and playing? No, I I was going right up until the beginning of the pandemic. (laughs) And then when the pandemic started, um, I... A month before the pandemic, the lockdown started, I uh, agreed to a new position as a medical musician, as the visiting artist in the Arts and Humanities program at Georgetown University Medical Center in Washington, D.C. The woman who runs that program had read my book, knew of my work, had come to a workshop that I gave in the Berkshires the summer before. And the reason that they brought me in there was so I could start a medical musician program in Georgetown and more important they were putting together uh, the material for a major new study on the effect of live music I'm sorry, the effect of music in ICU Hmm. and it's a study that they got a, a big grant from the National Endowment of the Arts and they were looking for the right musician for it and I've very honored to be asked by them to be the musician for the study. Um, I recorded, you you can't do that live, partly because of COVID now, but you can't do a study like that live because it has to be exactly the same music presentation for each Mm. of the 60 patients they do it for. So it has to be recorded. But they wanted me to curate a program, which I did. I recorded it. There are three 15-minute sets, morning, noon, and evening. And it's music that are what I call my penicillin pieces. From experience, I I have a repertoire of music that's very, very effective in the ICU. So 
So the music is already finished for the study. Uh, they're about to start it um, very soon. It's going to take about three months to do the study for the 60 patients. Then we're going to see what the data shows. You know, we're hoping, of course, that the data shows is going to show great things. Music and medicine is really, really a, a growing thing. It's taken a big hit in the last two years because of COVID. Of course, sure. Because, you know, uh, there are there still have there still has been some music done uh, in hospitals even during COVID. But um, what I do, you can't do with COVID because what I do is going right into the bedside. Andrew's writing journey after this word from Paul Lytle's Perilous Realms podcast. I am to understand that you have summoned me. I I did, the boy said excitedly. I can't believe it worked. It has worked, and I have come. Will you invite me in? The smile on Fortosio's lips was wide then, and if Wasson had been paying attention, he might have noticed the unusual length of Fortosio's eye teeth. But Wasson was too excited to notice. I would like to invite you on an adventure through my perilous realms. On Paul Lytle's Perilous Realms, I am serializing my audiobooks with an episode every week. We will go one book at a time through fantastic worlds and dangerous quests, all from the relative safety of your podcast app. To take up one of these journeys, check out Paul Lytle's Perilous Realms on your podcast app. That's Paul Lytle, L-Y-T-L-E, or search for Perilous Realms. And you're back with the Independent Author Podcast. I'm Tom Kranz with Andrew Schulman. Let's talk a little bit more about Waking the Spirit. So this was your your first book. Yeah. What um, what what parallels do you find between writing and making music as an artist? Well, yeah, you come up with a theme and you develop it. <laughs> um, you, um, it's all about communicating with either your audience or your reader. And um, the interesting thing, the connection that I make the most as a medical musician is uh, that I, I say that a medical musician is a storyteller in sound. Did you just one day sit, sit down and start writing or did you have a plan? Did you make outlines or did you just say, the hell with it, I'm, I just got to start getting stuff down on paper? Well, when I returned to the ICU, um, from the very first day, I kept a journal. Mm. I was going three days a week, and it was a really detailed... I would go in there and spend an hour, and eventually became more closer to two hours. And I would go home, and I would write down all the details, who I played for, and what I played for them, and anything that I noticed that happened. Things that doctors said, nurses Mm. said. After about a month, I started sending that journal uh, as a PDF to a few friends, a few of the doctors I was working with. And right from the beginning, everybody was saying, you've got to write a book. This is really, really interesting. 
So within a few months, the idea was, okay, yeah, the, a book should come out of this. But of course, uh, I knew that I would have to be in there for a while to have enough material. But the idea for a book came on pretty early. After doing the journal, then um, I put together not a formal book proposal, but uh, I, I put together. Uh, uh, it's a funny story. It's, it's my, my wife, who was a folk singer and singing in the music under New York, New York program in Grand Central, had a fan who himself was not a book agent, but in his work he worked a lot with book agents. Mm. And one day she told him about me and what I was doing, and he said, "Have him put together three to five Five sample chapters oh, okay. and, and a bio, and uh, and I'll see if I can help you. Uh, it took me about six months to put that together. Okay. We sent it to him, and a week later he called and he said it's really good. Um, and if you'd like, I can help you get a book agent. And of course, we jumped at the chance for that. And he found the right person within one day. You know, I I had a wonderful editor. Her name is Lindsay Tate. Um, And um, when we finished writing, um, she, uh, I remember we were talking one day and he said, okay, tell me the truth now. What do you think of my writing? Because I'm not a, I'm a professional musician, not a professional writer. And he, and she said, um, it's, it really is very good writing. Um, and, uh, and, and she laughed and she said her hardest job was turning my 20-page chapters into 10-page chapters. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, so overwriting is pretty common. Well, that's good. That's, you know, the combination of great content, compelling content, and good writing is like, that's the dream, man. That's the dream, yeah. So good for you for your first book. Well, uh, I want to remind everybody that the name of the book is Waking the Spirit. Andrew Shulman, it's S-C-H-U-L-M-A-N. Andrew has a website. Uh, Google his name, it comes right up. book is available on Amazon. And as I said, even if you're not, you know, a foam at the mouth musician or somebody who's who's got all this great interest in music, uh, it's it's still for you because this the story of the kind of the diligence of the doctors, the dedication and the loyalty of Andrew's wife. You talk about a saint. I think you said that yourself. She's got to be a remarkable woman. Uh, and just kind of everything that came together to make this story great is, uh, as I said it's going to make a great movie one day um so i appreciate your time and uh, i'm sorry that COVID has sidelined you like it has many other people but uh, slowly but surely we're all coming back and i hope to see you on the stage in person uh soon well thank you so much tom and i appreciate everything you are doing be well uh and uh, i will look for andrew shulman at the next life smile post andrew thanks so much thank you tom mm-hmm.